Before we get into the text, I wanted to tell you um, what tonight is in the Jewish world. This is the, uh, it's called Erev Sukkot, or the evening of tabernacles or booths. So around the world, Jews are celebrating this particular uh, holy day. It's, and by the way, I am thrilled to be here with you. Uh, you're my family, and uh, I'm more comfortable in this church family than I have ever been uh, anywhere, and I'm grateful. Uh, I have a, a wonderful staff and pastor um, uh, were very kind to me today. I, I, I'm here 20 years, and my senior, Mike Buer, back there, is, has been serving here 30 years at Sagemont Church. So between us, we have a combined total of 50 years. We're catching up on our pastor. I don't think we're going to pass him by. And uh, Mike and I were both commenting before the service about uh, how we would rather be in this church than any other. There are great churches across the country. But there comes a time, something happens when you develop a my church concept. That's not a church I go to. That's my church, that kind of deal. And then, sort of like marriage, for better or for worse, and good times and bad, you don't think of yourself being anywhere else, because that's where you belong. That's, that's your church. So we are blessed to be here. And then we, we commented about, uh, this is true, Mike can verify it. Mike, if I'm not telling the truth, just cut off my microphone. Um, we were speaking about how unusually blessed we are to be in a church with that senior pastor, Brother John. And, uh, well, you agree, for a good reason. He has been to churches, and I've been to churches, and we're not critical in any way. They're wonderful, wonderful churches all over. But we have never met a uh, senior pastor like our pastor. We feel safe here. Do you know staff is not safe in a lot of churches? We, we feel trusted here. We feel encouraged. We feel supplied. We feel safe. Ministers supposed to serve. We do, but we're on the receiving end, I think, more than, uh, than, than we give. And the environment is what it is because of our, our senior pastor. So we're grateful to God, Brother John, for, for giving you to us. Well, let's see. We were supposed to talk about something. Where were we? Uh, oh, yeah. It's, uh, so it's Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, it's mentioned in the Bible in Leviticus chapter 23. There we read about uh, seven holidays which God gave. It's kind of a calendar of holidays which God gave to the Israelites through Moses. And this one, Sukkot, is the seventh of the seven. It's the last one. This one is really interesting. It's called the season of our joy. That's how Jews refer to it, season of our joy. It's really wonderful that when it's all over, when God's divine calendar comes to an end, the expectation is joy. Folks, we have work to do, things to do. God has us here for a reason. It is kind of rough at times maybe even increasingly more challenging for us in this day, but uh, the best is yet to come. And the grand conclusion will be a forever season of our joy. So all we have to do is keep going until the Lord calls us home or returns, whichever comes first. And that's not a bad deal, is it? And and, and I'm so grateful we, we know the outcome of it all. It's the season of our joy. So here's what happens on this feast of tabernacles, tabernacles. It's to commemorate the fact that the Jews lived in booths or tabernacles for 40 years during their wilderness wanderings. God provided for them uh, dwellings and food and water. And so Sukkot, which begins tonight, it takes seven days. It's a seven-day festival, is basically Jewish thanksgiving. And Jewish people just gather around to remember, to be grateful to God for what he has done in the past, but also what he's doing in our lives today. 
So Sukkot is at the beginning of the rainy season, and it is at the conclusion of harvest and work and ingathering of crops. And so people pause to be grateful to God, not only for what he's done in the past, but for what he's doing today in providing for us food and sustenance and all of the necessities of life and uh, that kind of thing. And so um, we build these booths and, and, and we put them in our backyards or on our patios, or sometimes at a local synagogue, wherever it is, and people take meals in it. It's... Uh, it's a construction where you, you put uh, palm branches or other kinds of branches on it, and you put you can hang fruits and vegetables. It's kind of an agricultural festival. And, but, but what's important is the roof of it must be a see-through roof because when you're in it, you don't want uh, your vision of the Almighty to be obscured. You want to remember that you are where you are. And you are being provided for by the Almighty who dwells in the heavenly places. So that's what it's all about. And it lasts about uh, s- seven days. And I wanted to tell you about a custom associated with this holiday, which was uh, practiced in the very time of the Lord Jesus when Sukkot, or Feast of Tabernacles, was celebrated. Here's what happened. Every morning during the feast, seven days, the high priest would lead a procession from the temple. If you can imagine the temple being in an elevated area, then they would go downhill to a place called the Pool of Siloam. And a number of you have been there. You've seen the remains of the Pool of Siloam. So the priest would lead a processional every morning because water is a very important theme during Sukkot. Uh, uh, Folks are petitioning God for good rains in the rainy season to support their crops. So they would go down to the Pool of Siloam. The priest is leading the way, and there are musicians and singers. It's quite celebratory, quite festival. Remember, it's a season of joy. And the priest has a golden pitcher in his hand and he submerges it into the water of the pool of Siloam. He dips it in and he fills it up and then reverses course and makes his way now uphill uh, through one of the gates, which was then was called the water gate after this particular festival. And there the priest would climb up uh, kind of a ramp Uh, Where the altar of sacrifice was, it would be in the inner court of the temple. And there he would pour out the water on this uh, altar. And uh, as he did it, he would recite an interesting verse from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which says, Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the well of salvation. That's what he would do. And when he poured the water out, it would be a way of saying, oh, God, we depend on you for water. This is a symbol of our petition for a good season of uh, of rain. And when he did it, uh, silver trumpets. Have Have you heard of the word shofar? It's a ram's horn, kind of a curled thing. That's not the trumpet here. There are different trumpets in the Bible The trumpet that would be used on Sukkot was long and silver, and uh, it would be uh, sounded three times after the priest poured the water out. And then the priest would make a circuit around the altar one time, and uh, people had palm branches, and there would be a processional, and there would be all kinds of uh, singing, and this would take place each morning of this seven-day feast. But on the last day, the seventh day, things really picked up like crazy. The priest, once again, high priest, would lead a processional down to the pool of Siloam, fill up his golden pitcher, make his way back to the temple, recite the passage from Isaiah, and he would pour out the water. But this time, the silver trumpets would not sound three times. There would be three sets of uh, uh, a blast of the trumpet, each set consisting of seven blasts. 
And after those, the trumpets were sounded, the people would listen to a choir of Levites, Levitical people who were good singers like our choir. And the choir would sing, the Levitical choir would sing what's called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel is the word meaning praise. That's where we get the word hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. So they would sing the Hallel Psalms, which we have in our Bible today. It's Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Now the priest is not making just a singular circuit around the altar. He is marching in a processional seven times. And it's loud and it's celebratory. And people are expressing their gratitude to Almighty God. And they're looking to him for water, which is a source of life. And if you can imagine this in your mind. And in this context, all of a sudden, there's a voice. And it calls out and gets everyone's attention. And this is what the voice said. If any man is thirsty, remember the context. There's a water ceremony, water from the pool of Siloam. It's the beginning of the rainy season. Without rain, without water, there can't be crops. There cannot be life. People are looking for physical sustenance due to a provision of rain from the heavenlies by a gracious God. In this context, this voice cries out, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This voice is saying, I'm the source of your fundamental need. You're focused on rains to water the ground. You need that. But there can be a thirsty soul that is not satisfied by mere H2O. For your parched souls, I give an invitation. And the greatest voice that ever was heard gave the greatest invitation that ever was heard. And it's this one. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And lest anyone misunderstood, the voice continued and said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. I ask you a question, whose voice was it? It's the voice of the Lord Jesus. The typical position for teachers, and he was the master teacher, was to sit while students stood. On this occasion, the text tells us he stood because he's assuming, the, he's assuming the role here, not just of teacher, but of herald. He's proclaiming as a herald the greatest invitation of all time. If anyone's soul is parched, thirsts, come to me. Believe on me. And the result of it will be wells of living water. They will well up, spring up with inside. You will be nourished, not by a cup of water, but by an infinite and unending supply due to my presence in your life. If only you invite me to come in. That's what he did. And would you like to know? Our dear sister said, glory. And you're right. That's a magnificent response. Sadly, it was a mixed response from the people in the day. You would think everyone would say, glory, our Messiah has arrived. It didn't happen that way. And I want to show you this now. It's in John chapter 7, verse 40. John chapter 7, verse 40. Listen, some of the people, so you got the context, you, you know what the the content of the message, the invitation was, you know whose voice it was that proclaimed this glorious invitation. And here's the response. Verse 40 of John 7. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. What did they mean? Moses earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, spoke of one to come. He said, it will be a prophet like me. 
but not exactly like me. God will raise up this prophet from among you. You shall listen to him. So people had this notion of some person who is going to be a prophet along the lines of Moses, but greater than Moses. And so the people here are saying when they heard the voice of Jesus, he would have been referred to then as Yeshua, Yeshua. When they heard the voice of Yeshua, uh, some of the people said, he's the prophet. But that wasn't the only uh, 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 perception. Verse 41, others, see, some said he's a prophet. Others, can you see a division amongst the people already? Some said he's a prophet. These are all Jews. They're there in Jerusalem. This is one of the three big time feasts, pilgrim feasts, where everyone's supposed to go up to Jerusalem for worship. It's a crowded city. These Jews come from all over the place, but what do they have in common? They're all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all Jews, but already we're seeing a divide. This Jesus in response to him causes a divide. Some said he's a prophet, but verse 41, others were saying, no, 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 this is the Christ. Um, I ought to be a little embarrassed to tell you I used to think that was the last name of Jesus. So Jesus is Mr. Christ. That's what I, I thought. And I realized, no, Christ means anointed one or Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. So these people up the stakes, they said, no, 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 no. He's not a mere prophet. He is the Messiah. Wow. So, so they give him a valuation that's even higher than the first group. They went further. They said, no, no, he's no mere prophet. He is the Messiah. Yeah, the text says, but still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Now, where'd they get that? Well, here's the deal. Uh, the Lord Jesus spent a lot of years in a place called Nazareth, and that's in Galilee. Also, as an adult, he established for a few years the headquarters of his earthly ministry right along the shores, northern shores of the Sea of Galilee in a place called Kfar Nachum or Capernaum. That's also in Galilee. So these people wrongly concluded this Jesus was, he must have been born in Galilee. And they said, so he cannot be the Messiah because they asked, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not, verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, house of bread, the village where David was. So they rule out. He cannot be the Messiah. He comes from Galilee, but the Messiah we're waiting for, he's a descendant of David, and David's place is Bethlehem. So this is all going on. So verse 43 says, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. They were, they, they were unclear about his identity. They were absolutely unclear about his place of birth, but one thing was very clear. The people were divided over Jesus. The, the effect of the voice, the effect of the greatest invitation uttered by the greatest one of all time, if I'm reading this correctly, folks, was not peace. It was division amongst people. I think it's important for us to recognize that so that when we experience it, we're not surprised. In fact, would you be surprised to know that this voice, the Lord Jesus actually promised that when he comes, he'll, he'll cause division. Let me read this to you. It's in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 51. Uh, the Lord says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? In answer, many would say, yes. Many would say the purpose for which Jesus came is to grant peace, you know, political kind of peace. That's, that's why he came. But the Lord answers his own question in that passage in Luke 12, and he says, I tell you no, but rather division. Now, that's not exactly a very pleasant promise to claim, but if you're 
wanting to claim promises from the Bible, you better accept this one. The Lord Jesus did not come to make peace as we reckon it. He came to bring division. But you can say, wait just a second. Uh, Doesn't the Bible teach us that Jesus would in fact come to bring peace? And this would be one of the signs of the authenticity of one claiming to be Messiah. Well, the answer is yes, he came to bring peace, but not as many define it. He came to usher in the possibility of peace between God and man and woman. That's what he came to do. In fact, the Bible refers to him as the prince of peace. In Hebrew, we say the Sar Shalom. Sar means prince, shalom, prince of peace. But here's the point. Those who have rejected Jesus as the prince of peace have forfeited the possibility of peace with God and within. So the Lord clarifies things for his disciples then and now so that we're not surprised by the opposition there is to the gospel and by conflict there may be in your own family when you take a stand on the gospel. And so the Lord continues in that Luke passage. Listen to what he says. From now on, five members in one household, one family, will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son. Can you imagine it? Son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus was, Jesus is, the dividing line between people. Some accept him and others reject him. Folks, there is no demilitarized zone between the two groups of people. There's, there's, there's no neutral place to be. One is either for him or against him. And so in the same family, many of yours, perhaps mine, there is this sad, hurtful, and painful divide. But isn't the Lord, you might be thinking, isn't the Lord pro-family? Well, the answer is yes, but what family do you think he's putting most priority on? It's the heavenly family, not the earthly family. I have to tell you this. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just a reality. Now, 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 is the Lord teaching, if you're a believer, you should divorce yourself from your non-believing relatives? Oh, no, never. Do you know what that is? That very perspective is one of the uh, evidences of a cult. A cult or a cult-like group uh, encourages its members to separate from their family members. That's one of the number one ways you can know you're in a toxic, unhealthy church or you're in a cult. Oh, no. You never set up walls with your family no matter what they're about and what they believe and what their lifestyle is. We always hold out a, a hand just as the Lord uh, is uh, doing the same for, for us. So no, the Lord is not uh, teaching that we should in any way disown our unsaved family members. He's, he's only saying his emphasis is on the heavenly family and in the earthly family, the gospel is going to cause a great divide and we just have to know about it. See, uh, the gospel is something that confronts sinners with their sin and, and a lot of sinners don't like to hear that. They get offended. And furthermore, the gospel is something that declares there is absolutely no amount of human goodness that can reconcile us to God. And, and prideful sinners are offended by that. They don't want to hear that. And the gospel tells us, this is a real clincher, the gospel tells us, the gospel has the audacity to tell us Jesus is the only way to be at peace with God, and people are offended by that. 
So, so people whom the gospel uh, offends are divided from people whom have been saved by the gospel. Can you see the divide? It's just a, a big one. People are divided over Jesus into two groups, believers and non-believers, saved and unsaved, saved and lost. That's the great divide. We were in Israel a few weeks ago. I see uh, Rebecca right there, and she was one who, of our team members, and she was wonderful, and uh, we had a wonderful team. And as we traveled, we, we, le- we went through Frankfurt, Germany, on the way to Israel. And we had a bit of a layover in Frankfurt, and uh, so we're just standing around and waiting to board, and there was a man seated there, and I knew he was Jewish because he had this head covering, you've seen them, called a kippah or a yarmulke, and uh, had a beard, and, and Guillermo uh, Katz, who's now a member, he and his wife, member of this church, they came to us from Argentina, he's a, he's a, uh, a Jewish believer, Guillermo and I were engaging this man in conversation, the man's name was Phil, Phil, and then uh, Guillermo peeled off and let, left the hard work for me. And uh, a conversation ensued. That's all. One thing led to another. He was going to Israel to a wedding, the wedding of his daughter. His daughter lives in Israel. He is from Boston. And he was going uh, uh, there. I said, are you Orthodox? He said, yes. Orthodox, these are very, they hold to all the traditions of the the faith. And so, uh, uh, as I say, one thing led to another. And I had asked our group to memorize Isaiah 53, 6, and I think one or possibly two actually did that. Uh, And I was one of them. But anyway, I got a chance to share with them Isaiah 53, 6. Are you familiar with it? Hey, I'll share it with you. Uh, Here's how it goes. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity, that means sin, the iniquity of us all, get this, to fall on him. Who's the him? That is written by Isaiah 700 years before this magnificent Jesus became enfleshed and came to earth. And that is the intensely Jewish part of the Bible. I actually said to this man as we got to be friendly, I said, Phil, That was written by one of our homies. That's one of our boys, Isaiah. And and we had a a conversation. He was not angry in any way. It was worse than anger. It was indifference. Isn't that terrible? Indifferent about eternity and all the rest. But what I noticed is, what occurred to me, is that there were three Jews there, Yermo, myself, and uh, Phil, And there was a great divide based on our response to Jesus. Two of us accepted him. One, at least at this point, not yet. And there was a great divide. I I felt it. And and then we served at a uh, kibbutz. It's kind of an agricultural farm. And it's in the southern part of Israel, right across from Gaza. And it was... Uh, well, I won't name the place, but any, anyway, uh, they bestowed upon us the honor this time of serving by cleaning up and grooming their cemetery. It is kind of an honor. So we went there, and it was hot, and we, we did the best we could. We, we did a wonderful job. We trimmed bushes, trees, and raked and cleaned and did all manner of things. And then after a few hours, we were dead. I was dead. And we, we sat down. Not, not on the graves, we, we, but we sat somewhere. And one of the people with us was an Israeli uh, from the, a nearby kibbutz. And he spoke English real well and very friendly person. And he told us, he pointed over there and he said, that's the grave of my best friend. Oh, he said, really? He said, yes, he was a young man. He died in a helicopter accident. 
Well, we knew the story of this young man from this kibbutz, but we did not know we, were, we had the honor of cleaning that person's grave. It was an honor. So I said to this man, Amir, I said, Amir, what happens when people die? And he went, you know, uh, universal language. I don't know. And I said, Amir, what if I told you you can know? And he went. I said, Amir, what if I told you our own prophets told us about how we could know where we're spending eternity? So we had a little conversation. It ended. But then it picked up later, just the two of us. He was intrigued by the fact that uh, I, he said, you're Jewish, right? I said, yeah. And he couldn't figure out how I'm with a church group and all this. And it made for a good conversation. And while we were talking, and I got a chance to share Isaiah 53, 6 with him as well, it occurred to me that though we're kin in a way, we're both Jewish, uh, I, I felt a terrible divide. I felt... You know, apart from our ethnicity, we don't have a thing in common. But my real tie was f with those other people who I was with from Sagemont Church in Houston, Texas. That was my family. And I experienced both the joy of being in this family and the sadness of being apart from this, this guy. See, the gospel, there's no way around it. The gospel, I was on one side of the gospel faith, he was, at least at this point, on the other, denial. Of course, I'm praying for him and ask that you would as well. But at least at this point, it's just a great, a great divide. We were in a Druze village, Druze, D-R-U-Z-E. These are Israeli citizens, but it's an Arabic culture. They're non-Jews. But they're very loyal Israelis. That's part of the Druze religion. You must be loyal to the state in which you reside. So these non-Jewish Druze, Arabic-speaking people are very loyal Israelis. And we have gotten to know them over eight years. It's a closed religion. They do not believe in converting others nor being converted. And in some cases, the stated penalty is death. So they don't mess around. But we have become, by God's grace, very close over the years. And the project we worked on in their village was, it wasn't very glamorous, but it was useful to them. We painted iron railings on one of their thoroughfares, their streets, on both sides. They gave us paint, oil-based, I know, because I can't get it out of my shirt to this day. My wife was real mad at me. Why did you wear that shirt? But anyway, that's a whole different story. Um, so, so, so we painted, and while we're painting, uh, a Druze family, one of whom spoke English, said to one of our wonderful members, Stanley Fontenot. You know Stanley? He's off, on, I think, on another missions trip right now. They said to Stanley, Stanley, why are you doing this? It was hot on the heels of uh, our devastating storm, and yet our group went to Israel to serve them, and they were amazed and asked this question not in a critical way. They were, they were fascinated that we would come there under these circumstances. So they said to Stanley, why, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And Stanley said, I wrote this down because I loved his response. Stanley said, we are followers of the one from Nazareth. We believe in Yeshua and we have come to serve you in his name. That's what, that's what Stanley said, man, right on target. And I thought, what a divide between Stanley and these Druze people. Same creator, no one better than anyone else. Great divide. You would think it's cultural or linguistic or ethnic. No, no. The great divide was the gospel message and how people respond to it. One night, some of our group went to a place called Ben Yehuda Street. It's a place blocked off. You can walk. There's sometimes street musicians there and shops and coffee and 
you know, restaurants and so on. And one of our members of our team and of this church, John Doyle. I don't know if you know John, but you should get to know him. He's like one of the best people I ever met in my life. And one of the most gifted evangelists I ever met. Why? Because he doesn't set out to do evangelism. He simply sets out to develop a relationship. And it leads to gospel sharing. He's gifted. I, I watch how he does things. Anyway, he lost his business over here on Scarsdale and his home in the flood. But off we, he goes to Israel to serve. In fact, he only had one pair of shoes. And they were dress shoes, dressier than these. But we're doing work projects. They weren't fitting footwear. So in the Druze village, the head of the community, some of you know who he is, Abu we loaded in a car, went to a Drew's heart, uh, store to get John some shoes. There were some work boots, leather, real nice. John was trying them on. We thought they would fit. We were going to buy them. While there, our leader, you've met him, Moran Rosenblatt, is speaking to the shopkeeper who was a very religious Drew's man, all dressed in all black and a white head covering. He was showing him pictures of John's flooded home. And the man said, in a language I couldn't understand, but it was translated, the shopkeeper said, how could I charge him for these? You've come to serve us in light of all you've gone through? So he gave John the leather boots, and he gave us 25 pairs of gloves. We needed gloves. He gave us rakes and shovels, which we needed, all that uh, kind of stuff. And uh, so this John is on Ben Yehuda Street one night with his new shoes. And uh, he just makes conversation. And there's an ultra-Orthodox young Jewish man. I mean, black hat, you know, big beard and side curls. You ever seen that stuff? People you don't normally talk to. They're a little intimidating and so on. But not John. He says, excuse me, sir. I'm just curious. If an Orthodox person such as yourself wanted to serve in the Israeli army, could you? That's how he, he just starts conversation. Well, the guy went ballistic. Just for who knows what reason. I mean, he is yelling. And um, so John at some point says, um, sir, 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 can you slow down? He says, you're better than this. Can you get control of yourself and slow down? He said, I want to tell you something. I would, in spite of your aggressive attitude towards me, I would count it a privilege to be your friend. That's what he said. The, whole, the guy's whole countenance and demeanor changed. Unbelievable. They had a 45-minute conversation. John shared his testimony, shared the gospel. The guy said to him, the next time you come to Israel, my wife and I want you to come to our home as our guest. He said to him, I have to go to a store to run an errand. Would you care to walk with me? So here's this ultra-Orthodox guy with this guy from Texas walking down the... Just unbelievable. But I thought to myself, uh, in spite of the fact that they have become friends, there's a great divide between the two because of the issue of Jesus. One was a faithful, devoted follower, and the other was aggressively opposed. And in spite of the fact that they had come to terms on a horizontal level with one another, respecting each other's humanity, worth, and developed a friendship, still there was that great divide once again. What's my point in all this? Well, I wanted to tell you about our trip. So I snuck it in there. But there's, <laughs> there's actually a, another point. In this place, in that place, in Las Vegas, there are Jewish people and Gentile people. There are black people and white people male people and female people, old people and young people. And these are all points of division. I got it. But the most fundamental divide is none of those things. It's those who have the son and those who do not. 
when our hearts broken reflect on the tragedy and loss of life in Las Vegas. Of the, I think the figure is 59 now, who lost their lives. <clears throat> I suppose if we look, had their pictures here, I've seen some of them, perhaps you have too. Beautiful, some are female, some are male, uh, some are white, some are brown, some are black, mostly white, it was a country concert. But there was diversity nonetheless. But what's the real dividing point of the close to 60 response to Jesus? It affects everything. And it's such a divide that it lasts on into eternity. He who has the son, he who has heard the greatest invitation ever given, come to me if you're thirsty. He who has the son has life, but he who does not have the son has not believed in Jesus personally, shall not see life. That's the great, that's, that's just the great divide and there's no way around it. And it's very hard for some of us to believe that something from God can divide, but it does. The gospel of grace is from none other but God, but it divides. I'm emphasizing this because we ought not be surprised when it does. It's just the way it is, even in our own families. So I ask you, where do you stand with reference to the gospel? Who you are is to be respected. Your ethnicity, gender, age, absolutely. But you and I make more of that than we ought to. The real issue is, what have you done with Jesus. And when we stand before our maker, the father of all, the father of this magnificent son who took on flesh to suffer and die in our place, the father will not say, tell me about your whiteness or your blackness or your maleness or your femaleness. Or He's going to say, what have you done with my son? It's important. There is, there is no question more important. Our very eternity depends upon it. Our fate is not in the hands of some crazed madman who occupies a room on the 32nd floor of a hotel. No, no. Our fate can be sealed by the Savior who says, if you thirst, come to me. And furthermore, he says, and if you do, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And furthermore, he says, you will be with me for eternity. Because, he says, if you happened to be, even by your time reckoning, prematurely separated from your body, absent from your body, you will be present with me. I don't want my fate to be left to the cruel winds of fate or some crazed madman. I want to be, I want to be destined for eternal, eternal bliss. In the, I want the season of joy to characterize my end. Not a question mark, not some vague annihilation. No, I, 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 I want to live on with joy in the presence of the voice who uttered this marvelous invitation some 2,000 years ago. What have you done with Jesus? This is important. Some of the people there, according to verse 44, wanted to seize him, but nobody dared. Then the officers and the chief priests, religious people, Pharisees, they said, why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way he did. At great risk, the Pharisees' law enforcement team tasked to arrest Jesus said, we couldn't. No one has ever spoken like him. And then the Pharisees said, are you kidding me? You've not been led astray. Also, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him, has he? But the crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. <gasps> 
One time I shared my faith with an Orthodox rabbi who said to me, that's what happens when a young person untrained in the law and theology like you reads it for himself and comes to these conclusions. That's what a rabbi told me. Just like these guys. These guys are saying only foolish people who don't know what they're talking about, only uneducated people could believe that this Yeshua is Messiah, is the anointed one. You know what's a terrible thing? I hope you're not like this. You don't think you're too smart for the gospel, do you? You don't think you're too good for the gospel, do you? You're not, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then one stood up, Nicodemus, a Pharisee himself. You heard of him. He said, listen, our law doesn't judge a man until it first hears from him. Nicodemus, this is the second time in John's gospel we heard of him. Is he a believer? I don't think so yet. But we'll hear about him the third time. And I end with this. I noticed that the Holy Spirit works at different rates of speed in people's lives. Sometimes you share the gospel with someone and they are ready to believe it and accept Jesus as Savior. Have you had that experience? It's glorious. Other times, you have to think of evangelism as a process, not as an event. You hang in there. You keep praying. You don't give up. You keep going because the Holy Spirit is bringing someone like Nicodemus. Eventually, we'll see Yeah, he comes to faith, but not right away. Why do I end with this? Because you have these lost family members you're burdened about, and you may be divided from them even as we speak, and you may be tempted, as I have been from times, to kick the dust off our feet and say, that's it, enough is enough. (gasps) We must never say that. We must always be praying, oh God, in the power of your spirit, will you soften the hardened heart of my relative. Would you, for your sake, let them see you through me? Would you give me opportunity to shine for you in word and works so that they could see a changed life and give you the glory? Would you hang in there with me and through me? And in the power of your Holy Spirit, as with Nicodemus, would you bring them along incrementally? You never give up. You keep witnessing. You keep being a witness. You keep praying. And we want to do the latter right now. So I want to ask you, those of you who are burdened over a lost family member or members with whom there's a bit of a divide even now, could you stand to your feet right there? I'm going to join you in just a second. You won't be embarrassed. Just where you are. And I've asked our wonderful pastor to pray on behalf of our lost family members. You know their names. Our pastor doesn't have to. He's going to utter his petition to Almighty God. Now, you and I can pray too. I don't know that our pastor is closer to God than anyone here. Maybe he is, but that's not the point. I want to know on this date, it's October something, 4th? October 4th, 2017, my pastor... Pray to Almighty God for my unsaved family members. I just want to reckon on it and live consistent with that prayer in the hopeful expectation that one day, maybe, we'll be united by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and there will be no divide. So our pastor is going to pray for us. I don't know about you. I have one that every day I think about exactly what we've just heard. I want my family to be in heaven, don't you? Yeah, even those that we hadn't seen in a while. We'd like to see them again in heaven. So you pray for yours. I'm going to pray for mine. But we're going to bind our hearts together. Agreeing is touching anything in heaven. It can be done on earth. So let's pray. Every one of you. You don't have to pay attention to the words of my prayer. This is to God. But don't leave here without praying for that person. Okay? Dear God, our hearts have been stirred Our minds have been focused. They're focused upon you and your invitation that whosoever will can come and drink of the water of life freely. 
And Father, you have blessed us with family. Our families aren't perfect. We're not perfect, but you are. And Father, at times we've misrepresented you to our family, I'm sure. I know that if we know, if we knew what you know, that we would be somewhat ashamed as the way we acted, what we said, a position we took on a matter. And really, the problem wasn't the problem. There was a difference between us being brothers and sisters in Christ as opposed to just being a family here on earth. And oh God, I pray right now, as I'm thinking of the one in my family, that every one of us here will just see that face and will start asking you to open up the opportunity for us to share you with them. Not only with our talk, but with our walk and our passion and our heart. So bless us, Father, with an opportunity. Open up a door. Create a situation that will bring us together. And then, we meet, then may we be living proof of a loving God to a watching relative. And may that be the moment when we will see the fruit of many years of prayer and labor. And I thank you for the message tonight. I thank you, Father, for the absolute interpretation of the scripture that was so clear. And I'm asking you now, Father, to open that door. Get us on the telephone, writing, sending texts, whatever. But Father, would you just give us that one more time to tell our family about you and to use words if necessary. In Jesus' name, amen.